This morning, I want to begin with a little trivia that may go back a few years. It was a little television show that started in 1948 and ran for the next 56 years until 2004. This television show involved concealing, and this will give it away, concealing cameras so they could film ordinary people confronted with oftentimes very unusual situations. Some trick props, perhaps, maybe a desk drawer that when you close this drawer, the other one opens, and you close this drawer, and this other one opens, and you just are fiddling with this crazy desk forever to get all the drawers closed. Maybe it was pulling up to a gas station in a rental car that didn't have any place to put in the fuel. And they're searching, and they're looking, and they're asking questions, and they're looking behind the license plate. Where in the world? Until finally, at some point, somebody would come along and bail them out, so to speak, save them in their moment of pure embarrassment, and they would say the show's catchphrase. Do you know it? Smile, you're on? Candid camera. In one such show, they caught on tape as a bunch of people were riding an elevator up to the top floor, everybody in the elevator was in cahoots, except for the one, of course, that was boarding the elevator. And the thing that was strange was that every person in the elevator was not facing the doors, as we always do. They all had turned and were facing backwards to the doors. How strange is this? Yet, interestingly enough, this tells us a little bit. This is a revealing little study, if you will, case study. Interestingly enough, people would come on to the elevator, make a strange face. I don't know what's going on. And oftentimes they'd, well, I don't know. And they'll, you know, ding, ding, ding. And invariably, every time, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to turn and face the other way. Why? You know, they're having to do this to see, is this my floor? Okay, and then they're going out. And the next people come in, and the same thing, everybody is turning around. And of course, this makes for great entertainment. Look at these people, they're so stupid. Oh, my. ABC News did a study in January 12 of 2006 asking, why do people follow the crowd? So on ABC's prime time, did many of their own studies, and the results of these studies were the same. Why are people such conformists? That's the question that Dr. Gregory Burns, an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Atlanta's Emory University, not too far away, he tried to answer this question with a recent groundbreaking experiment and paper, and in the conclusion of his article, why do people conform? Why do they follow the crowd? Scientifically speaking, what is going on here? He came up with two conclusions in his article. The first is, they know what their eyes are telling them, and yet they choose to ignore it and go along with the group so that they can still belong to the group. They make a choice. I'd rather belong than to follow what my eyes or my senses are telling me. I don't know. Second conclusion he came up with, second explanation, 
even if those conclusions are wrong, they can actually change what they see, huh? Yeah, they can change what they see, distorting their own perceptions. That is, the interpreting centers of the brain light up when others' opinions are heard, and thus the brain tries to find and search for ways to interpret the data in such a way to conform with what everybody's doing. Isn't that interesting? So you're sitting in class, and everybody else is saying this one answer, and you're quite positive it's this answer, but your brain is now racing, racing, racing. I must have heard the question wrong. Maybe he said the false one or, or something else. And so you're racing, trying to figure out, oh, yeah, of course, oh, yeah, I'll go along with that. Have, have you ever been pressured by your peers? Sometimes we think this is a youth thing, right? Oh, the poor youth of today... They go through all this peer pressure. It's a hard time. But folks, I hate to break it to you, the whole end time scenario centers around this idea of peer pressure, does it not? Too scared to stand up and stand out for fear of what it might cost, be it my reputation, my job. The list goes on. So this morning, I want to take a look at a very well-known story. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you brought them this morning, to Exodus. And we'll begin in chapter 32. But before we get there, let me refresh you a little bit of the background leading up to this chapter. Exodus 32, towards the end of the book of Exodus, prior to our story, God has made a covenant with his people. And we have God audibly speaking the Ten Commandments in their hearing, inviting them to a deeper level of commitment to Him. And in those intense moments, can you imagine being there listening to God's voice? I imagine God's presence was unmistakable. As the thunder and the lightning and Mount Sinai billowing with smoke and the earth is quaking and the trumpet blast is getting louder and louder with greater intensity until this voice comes booming out of Almighty God. And in that moment, everybody responds and says, Lord, all that we have heard, all that you have said, forgive me, we will do. And Scripture tells us that Moses again climbed up the mountain and went into the midst of that cloud where Scripture tells us he was sustained by God for 40 days and 40 nights. Almost six whole weeks. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that, we shall, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Really? The people knew where Moses was. They could still see the cloud of God's presence over the mountain. But is Moses still alive? I don't know. 
Six weeks have passed. We haven't heard a thing from Moses. So with Moses gone, this mixed multitude is now crying out for some visible representation of God. And so they turn their back to the cloud and ask for an image. Now, granted, they haven't fully rejected God. They just want to worship Him on their own terms. Does that sound like many in society today? Does that ever sound like us? Does that ever describe me? And Aaron, you recall, is Moses' sidekick. It is on the way to see Pharaoh that Moses picks up his brother, and he is the one needed to speak to Moses. Moses is fearful of his speech. He says, Aaron can speak because he has a stammering tongue. And so he has faced Pharaoh, Aaron has, time and time again. He has seen the Lord's deliverance. In fact, just before God speaks the Ten Commandments, he commands that Aaron come up with Moses up Mount Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 19. This is one of God's top leaders among his people, Aaron. And now, with Moses absent, Aaron, you're in charge. It's you. And now the people want an image. What are you going to do, Aaron? You're in the hot seat. The crisis called for a man of firmness, decision, and unflinching courage. One who held the honor of God above favor, personal safety, or even life itself. Okay, Aaron, what are you going to do? The people are crying out. How will you respond? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 316, says this. Aaron feebly protested, but his wavering, his timidity at that critical moment only rendered the people more determined a blind, unreasoned frenzy seemed to take possession of the multitude. The crowd is becoming very irrational now. And listen to this. There were some who remained true to their covenant with God, a few who ventured to denounce the proposed image-making as idolatry, but they were set upon, roughly treated, and in the confusion and excitement, they finally lost their lives. The issue is one of worship. The stakes are high. And rather than nobly stand for the honor of God, I imagine Aaron fears for his own safety. We read on, verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Where did it come from? Exodus 12 tells us it came from the Egyptians. That's right, from the pagans. And what was God's purpose in that? But none other than build a sanctuary. Verse 3. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Notice how willing they are to take it off to make a foreign god. We better get going, keep going or I'll get distracted. Verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice it's not a new God. This is the God who brought us through, but now we have something we can see, we can touch. It's visible. They wanted to worship God on their own terms. If only this leader would have held the line, refused to compromise, But as far too often, it's too easy to give in to what the people want instead of what they need. Verse 5, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Turned into ruckus dancing and sexual interaction. Aaron basely permitted this insult to Jehovah. If Aaron had unswervingly maintained his own allegiance to God, Spirit of prophecy tells us, rather, his calm assurance with which he carried on the plans simply emboldened them to go to the greater lengths in sin than they had originally entered into their minds. If he had stood firm, but now they were emboldened. The issue was worship, the stakes were high. I mean, after all, who wants to die at the hands of an angry crowd? Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. For my people, is that what your Bible says? Not this time. Moses, you get down there for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Stiff-necked people. Skipping down to verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation, Moses. Now, stop right there. If Moses would have been made of the same stuff as Aaron, looking out for number one, this is a no-brainer. Well, by all means, God, let me step over here. Is this out of the way enough? Do what you need to do. Hate to see it happen. We'll start with me. I tell you, it'll be a whole lot easier. These people have just been a headache from the beginning. Do you want me to give you a countdown? Three, two, one, get them! Verse 11. 
Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken or I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So, verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm which he had said he would do to his people. It's because of Moses' selfless intercession on behalf of the people that God changed his mind. Moses is not concerned with self-preservation, the prosperity of God's chosen people. God's church was dearer to him than personal honor, dearer to him than the privilege of becoming the father of a great and mighty nation. God's church came first. So Moses heads down the mountain. They hear what sounds like war in the camp. Apparently, there's a way that music can sound like war. And Moses looks upon the scene, and his anger became hot, and he throws down the Ten Commandments, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant. Takes down the golden calf, grinds it up into powder, puts it in the water, and makes them drink their God. How powerful is that God? And then we find Moses asking Aaron, what is up with this? We read about it, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Upon them. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know, Moses, you know the people. Their minds are set on evil. For they said to us, said to me, make us gods that we shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him bring it, break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire and out popped this calf. The most miraculous thing happened. So now Moses, God's fearless leader, I believe, has had enough. And in verse 26, we read, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Moses takes the stand that Aaron should have taken. You can't force people to take your stand, but you can direct them to take a stand. If you are on the Lord's side, come to me. You can't force people to take your stand, but you can give them the opportunity to take a stand. I wonder if that's where Joshua gets this stuff. Choose you this day whom you will serve. He's there. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are times when we have to draw a line in the sand and say, enough is enough. You can't force people to take your stand, but you can direct them to take a stand. 
That's what leaders do. They don't straddle the line and try to please everyone. Leaders take a stand. Sometimes all the people want or even longing for is for the leader to take a stand so that they might too. Just take a stand. I'll follow you, they might be thinking. And then we read these disturbing lines. Going back to verse 26, we'll continue on from there. Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And verse 27, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. We like to talk about the 3,000 that came to the Lord in the book of Acts. We don't like to talk about this 3,000 here. But in God's abundant mercy, don't miss this, in God's abundant mercy, freedom of choice and opportunity for repentance were offered to all. Were they not? All those who had so blatantly broken the marriage covenant and so soon into the marriage were given opportunity to repent. But some persisted in their rebellion. And so those determined in their rebellion were cut off. Acting by divine authority, the sentence was executed. And it's not a pretty picture. But it was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgment upon millions. Are you with me? Verse 31, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin... Does your Bible have a dash there? In the Hebrew, it's as if it's just cut off. I imagine Moses perhaps is so filled with emotion. It's just this, this choke, this period of silence. If you will forgive their sins, choke. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And for another 40 days, Moses pleads with God, acting as an intercessor for God's people. Just as Christ mediates for sinful man, Moses acting here in the role of Christ, mediating on behalf of the people. And while there's some strong parallels, God did not permit Moses to bear the guilt of their sin as Christ did for us on the cross. But let's finish out this story. Exodus chapter 33 now, verse 13. Exodus 33, verse 13. 
Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is, again, your people. And he, God, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Skipping down to the end of verse 17. You have found grace in my sight and I know you by name. And in chapter 34, we read that upon coming down off the mountain, Moses' face glowed from being in the presence of God. You see, the closer you are in communion with God, the clearer our knowledge of his requirements, the more we are conformed to the divine image. But looking at this story as a whole now, isn't it interesting? Does any of this sound familiar? For today, Christ is interceding on behalf of his people, and Revelation tells us that the final events will center around what main issue? Is it not worship? How will we worship, as God dictates or as man dictates? On God's terms or on my own terms? On God's holy seventh-day Sabbath, set apart since the, the creation, the memorial of his creation? Or on a day ordained by man, without biblical support? And again, the stakes will be very high. We're done with Exodus for now, but I want you to turn to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. And we'll just read a few snippets here. We don't have time to break all this down. If you get lost and confused in the next few moments of this sermon, contact one of us and let's study in depth some of these passages. But Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 we read, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Here we have what most interpreters accept as the United States in Bible prophecy. Who, verse 12 says, will call the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Protestant scholars through the centuries have identified this first beast as the papacy. That was in great power from 538 to 1798. But in 1798, it took what seemed to be a fatal blow. So here in Revelation 13, we have this beast coming up out of the earth after 1798, a nation rising to great power after 1798 with two horns like a lamb, church and state. And it will cause people to worship the first beast. And then the punchline, don't miss this, verse 14 telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, a likeness of, to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived and was, grant, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should be, both speak and cause as many who should not worship. There it is. The image of the beast to be what? Killed. Again, the issue will be one of worship. Again, the stakes will be high. Again, people will be forced to choose. 
The seal of God, his name, title, territory, encapsulate in the seventh-day Sabbath. Or the mark of the beast. Verse 16 and 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may be able to buy or sell except for those who have the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Talk about peer pressure. No, you can be sure this issue will come up again. Again, people will be called to make a decision. Before divine judgment is pronounced upon the earth, the issue will be worshiped. The stakes will be high. The question is, will you be willing to stand up and stand out? That's the question. Some of you may be familiar with Ed Reed, known for his stewardship or second coming presentations within the Adventist church. And he makes what I think is a really neat illustration. Perhaps you've heard him tell you this one before. But currently we have right about 6.9 billion people in the world today. 6.9 billion. By the way, that's doubled in the last 50 years. But anyway, 2.1 billion of those are Christian. That involves Protestants, Catholics, everybody. 2.1 billion. Only 20 million of those are Seventh-day Sabbath keepers. Now that includes Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, Seventh-day Church of God, everybody. So if you divide two billion by the 20 million Sabbath keepers, that would be all of Christians by Seventh-day Sabbath keepers, come out to about 100, almost exactly 100. So basically you have one Sabbath keeper for every 99 Sunday keepers. Let's just keep it simple. One Sabbath keeper for every 99 Sunday keepers, which includes people like Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, Bill Hybels, C.E. Jakes, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham. You get the picture. My question is, how can this 1% of the Christian world be right? It's not very popular anymore, but do you remember the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Maybe it's still your favorite show. That's okay. So let's say this man has answered all nine questions correctly. And the final question, for a million dollars. Okay, they're playing the scary music now. The lights are going. Everything's happening. Final question, which day is the Bible Sabbath? Well, luckily for him, it's multiple choice. Okay, A, Sunday, first day of the week. B, Wednesday, fourth day of the week. C, Friday, sixth day of the week. Or D, Saturday, seventh day of the week. And this poor man, he he has no idea. He's just sweating bullets up there. But you know what? He's okay because he still has one lifeline left. He's going to poll the audience. Okay, you're going to use lifeline? Okay, that sounds like a good idea. And then all of a sudden, this huge graph comes up. And what does it say? Everybody, it's just way up here. A, Sunday, first day of the week. This is what we call a no-brainer, right? What is the right answer? D, the seventh day of the week. Friends, the issue will come up again. 
It will be an issue of worship. Worship is highlighted three times in the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Worship is highlighted five times in Revelation chapter 13. And speaking of the last world, power's in play, and the stakes will be high. And on that day, what kind of man will you be? What kind of woman will you be? What kind of leader and pathfinder will you be? Will you follow the crowd for fear of your life? Or will you stand up and stand out? Back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 323, it says this, if Aaron had courage to stand for the right, if, irrespective of the consequences, he could have prevented that apostasy, end quote. If he had standed. Two brothers, two leaders, two very different approaches to leadership. Approach number one, we'll give the people what they want. Lead to please, play politics. Do whatever's most convenient. Approach number two, follow the prerogative of God. Refuse to compromise, stand up and be willing to stand out. At any time, I believe there will be a group of individuals who are willing to stand at all costs, who are not afraid to take a stand, to stand up and stand out in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes all the people are, are wanting or even longing for is for a leader that might take a stand so that they might too. Just take a stand, I'll follow you. The news right now, especially in this political season, is full of non-committal commitment. You know what that is? We're committed, but we're not. We do, but we don't. We are, but we aren't. We will, but we won't. It's time to say, here is where I stand. People are hungry for leaders that will say, here's where I stand. And you might be saying, well, okay, I, I get it, but that's, that's not my style. Friends, I'm sorry. We're not worried about your style this morning. We're worried about your calling. As a leader in this church, as leaders in your Sabbath school class, your Pathfinder club, as leaders in your dorm, as spiritual leaders in your home, as leaders in your sphere of influence, be it work or any place else. We're not worried about your style, but your calling. Take a stand. Take a stand. And someone might be saying, well, yeah, but... That, that can be costly. Of course it's costly. What about the leader at Calvary? Don't you think he weighed the cost? Prayed all alone in the garden, stood all alone in the judgment hall, died all alone on the cross. Don't you think it's costly? Of course it's costly. But in the name of Christ, take a stand. Take a stand. 
stand up and stand out. You can't force people to take your stand, but you can direct them to take a stand. Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So my appeal to you is very simple this morning. If you want to say to the Lord, I want to take a stand for you today. I want to stand in that locker room, in that break room, in my living room, in the Sabbath school room, in the boardroom, whatever. If you desire to stand up for Jesus by his grace and by his power in filling you, but you say, Lord, I want to stand for you. I want to be faithful for you. I don't want anything to have to go against my conscience. I want to stand up. I want to stand out regardless of the cross or the cost. Perhaps in light of the cross. Lord, will you help me in this difficult situation that you have brought to my mind? Lord, will you help me to stand? If you want to make that appeal to the Lord just now, I invite you to stand on your feet. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we have to ask now for your forgiveness for the times when we have let you down, when we have marginalized you, when we have taken the path of least resistance for fear, perhaps, of what it might cost. But the reality is we could not stand and ask had you not first stood for us. Lord, we desire to fulfill that mandate to stand for you, to make the tough decision regardless of the cost, but Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your infilling spirit to give us the courage the power to overcome. But we know that you are faithful, that you have promised to be there for us. So by your grace, may we stand for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.